If you've got a Bible with you, can you turn with me to the book of Revelation? It's right at the end. Um, and as you're going there, I just want to say a, a, a thank you. I've heard about you guys in the East um, and uh, I am prayed for you in gatherings. And so it's great to see you here in situ. And I just want to say thank you. If you were there at Fusion two years ago, um, you guys prayed for us. You gave financially to establish us as a church plant. We just want to say Thank you. Um, we were praying for 10 baptisms last year, and on the very last Sunday of 2019, we baptized number nine and number 10, literally at the 11th hour of 2019, which we praise God for. And uh, we just want to say thank you for how you've sowed, and we're trusting God for there's maybe 8 million people in London who don't yet know Jesus, that they would come to know him as well. So thank you. It's great to be with you. Um, who's read the book? by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. Has anyone read? One person has half read it. Two people have half read it. Or three people have half read it. And let me encourage you, if you've half read it or not read it, um, you can still pick it up. A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you want to know the God that you sing to on a Sunday morning, if you want to understand him, and if you want to go into the depths of the glory of God, buy and read this book. It will change your view of who God is forever. And he, at the beginning of this book, when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. I don't know if you believe that or not. His thesis is that not what you do, who you are, how you look, your bank account, how successful you might be. None of those things are the most important thing about you. He says the most important thing is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Just think about it right now. Like, who is it that comes into your mind? To your mind. And when you read the scriptures, it does seem to play out that what we think of who God is is the most critical thing about us. Because when we read back in Genesis 3, when Satan comes along to, to lure us and want to destroy our lives, he doesn't come along with this kind of sales pitch. He doesn't say, Adam and Eve, it's great to meet you. How do you fancy screwing up your life? destroying your children's life and breaking humanity for all, all history. You're up for that? Fine, like come with me, stage left. And we'll, what does he do? He'd be like, no, it's all right. I don't want to. He says, and he whispers to them, he says, did God actually say that you're not to eat of any of the trees in the garden? God actually said, you can have any, eat of any tree, but this one. And what does Satan do? He comes and whispers and he misconstrues the character and the nature of who God is. He makes God out to be someone he is not. And so suddenly this fresh thought from Satan comes into their minds and they have a distorted view of God. This idea that he's kind of a killjoy. He wants to stop joy in your life. And they think, well, actually, yeah, maybe he is withholding goodness from me. And they start to walk away from God and everything falls apart at that point. Some of you might think that now. You might not be a Christian here today. And you might be thinking like your understanding of God is this kind of like stern, killjoy. There's all these fun things in life, but you're not actually allowed to do that because you've got to be in church on a Sunday morning and you've got to do, be moral and you've got to be a good person. And this is what, and, and you, what, you have a distorted understanding of the nature of who God is. And he is continually trying to undermine our understanding of, of who he is. And if we do have a wrong view of God, everything else, domino by domino in our life, will begin to fall apart. And it might be slowly. And so what we need to do is continually come with a fresh vision of who Jesus Christ himself actually is. 
time and again, if, if we want to be on mission, following Jesus faithfully, what we need more than a pat on the back and a way to go is a vision of Jesus, to see him. When Jesus took his disciples and said, you come follow me, you, you be my disciple, I'm going to train you in the ways of the kingdom and then I'm going to commission you to go out. When the disciples first got called, I mean, Jesus, he was like a, he was a celebrity of his day, loved and hated at the same time. But he was like, and, and they had this idea that when they were following Jesus, they were kind of going on this upward career path into political power and position. They kind of had this idea that now we're with Jesus, he's going to be establishing his kingdom over Israel again. We're with him. He's going to be, I'm sure he's got titles for us in his mind. He's already thinking about the kind of leather he's going to have on our seats and the positions of power. And they, they thought they were on this upward trajectory towards comfort, prestige. And Jesus, like 18 months into his discipleship program, says, Okay, by the way, I'm going to be crucified soon. And if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me as well. And you've got to understand in the disciples' mind, they're like, I, I, what? I, no, no, no. We're going for like political ascendancy here. And you're now talking about dying on a cross. And you can understand the kind of uncertainty about their future. If you've ever lived with any kind of like, depression or uncertainty about what my future lies. Suddenly, there was this anxiety and turmoil inside their minds. Like, do, do we leave? And there were all these moments where they were questioning, like, do we leave? Others are leaving him now. He's, the things you're saying are hard. What, what do we do with this Jesus? And what, what did they need at that point? They didn't need a, a word from Jesus like, you know, you might get crucified, but it only lasts for a couple of hours. It's all right. You know, there's, there's, there's resurrection power at the end of it. I'm sure it won't hurt that bad. You might go, I don't know. Like, he doesn't tell any of that. What happens is he takes some of his disciples up a mountain and we're told that he is transfigured in their presence so that his face shines with the glory of God from himself. And they get to see who Jesus actually is. And this word from the father comes over his son, Jesus. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. What they got was not a pat on the back, but a revelation, a fresh sight of who Jesus actually was. And this is what we need as we walk on mission. The saints of old continually had this. Whenever there was uncertainty in the nation, whether people needed surety and assent, that they would continue to say, I saw in the heavens the glory of God. I saw the glory of God. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The saints saw Jesus Christ. John Stott, who is an Anglican vicar in London, he's now died. But he, he talks about what motivates us as Christians, what actually sustains us for the long haul. And he says this, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, but rather a zeal, a burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Only one imperialism is Christian. And that is our concern for his imperial majesty, Jesus Christ, and for the glory of his empire. Amen. What is going to sustain you as you follow Jesus, as you plant churches, as you seek to see friends and family come to know this wonderful God of ours? What is it? It's not just simple obedience. It's not simple love for sinners. 
It's a passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And how that zeal gets stirred up and stoked again and again is by seeing his glory. When you see the glory of God, this is not what happens. You say, I've seen the glory of God. Oh, great. Tick. That's one thing off my bucket list. What else can I do now? Like, I, when you see the infinite, perfect, eternal glory of God, it whets your appetite for more and more and more. C.S. Lewis closes out his Narnia books, if you've ever read them, with this moment where the children are going up with some of the Narnian creatures and there is this cry that goes out from the unicorn. You didn't think I'd be quoting from a unicorn today, but I am. And he, he, he makes this cry, this Narnian cry, further up and further in. When you've seen the glory of God, what happens in your heart is this burning cry further up and further in. Let me see more of your depths or let me see more of your glories, more of the intricacies of your beauty and who you actually are. The mark of a true believer and a follower of Jesus Christ is this deep well of hunger to see Jesus. And what I want to do now is just pray really quickly and then we're going to get into Revelation 4 and 5 that we might see him in this school hall. Is it a school hall? It is a school hall, yeah. That we might see the glory of Jesus. Isaiah went to temple one day and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Imagine that. I mean, imagine meeting God when you went to church. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Imagine this like walls just kind of dissolving before us. And Father, I, I ask, Lord, that you would open up our eyes that we would see Jesus. Lord, our, our, our hearts, our spiritual eyes and our heart, Lord, that we, we would see you. This unequivocal sight of Jesus. I pray encourage us today, I ask. Lift us. May, may we know that the God who we sing, who is big, we would know some of your bigness. We would know some of your eternality. We would know something of your infinite vastness. Further up and further in. Sometimes we talk about wanting to be a New Testament church. I don't know if you've been a Christian for a while. Like We want to be a New Testament type church. And we, we, we have to be careful what we wish for. Because when you actually read the New Testament story, there are a lot of churches who are not actually doing very well. You would not want to model yourself on the Corinthian church. You think, hey, that's a church we want to do. Like There's lots of divisions and fightings and misuse of spiritual gifts. Let's be like that. No, no. You've got to be really careful what you wish for. And when it comes to the end of the New Testament, the New, Testa the, 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 the New Testament churches around the Mediterranean, honestly, they were struggling. So much so that Jesus himself has to come to the Apostle John and he says, I need to dictate myself a letter to each of these seven churches because they need to hear from me. I'm not going to send an angel in my place. I am going to write direct letters to them. And so what we're told about these, these churches is this. The church in Ephesus was getting persecuted on a regular basis. The church in Smyrna had people who were getting jailed week after week after week. The church in Pergamum 
we're told that their church building dwelt next to Satan's throne. Imagine that. Imagine like, oh, where are you planting your church? We're planting the church in, our, in East Swindon East. Oh, we're in Swindon. No, we're, we're planting a church next to Satan's throne and we're going to go do some damage for the good of the glory of Jesus Christ. Imagine that, like the kind of spiritual intensity that they were in at that point. The church in Thyatira, we're told, has a Jezebel in their midst. The church in Sardis, we're told, were soiling their garments. That's a sermon for another day. The church in Philadelphia, we're told, was small struggling to gain momentum, struggling to gain traction. If you've been in a church plant, we're church planting right now. We know what this feels like. Say, Lord, come on, every Sunday matters, amen. And they're in this position, the church in Laodicea, they were struggling with people who are coming every week, but were just lukewarm. And John himself was in Patmos in jail, struggling with no hope they would ever be free to go and travel and serve and strengthen the churches again. So we get this moment. And what does the church need in this moment? They don't need a pat on the back and like a leadership seminar to try and find the hero inside yourself and you can do it. What they need is a revelation of who Jesus is. And this is what we get in Revelation chapter four, because we're told that John, after having these seven, imagine what a depressing job. You've just dictated, written down these seven letters. To the, you're like slowly getting ground down at the end. Like, I, oh, I give up. I, I, what is all this for? It feels like everything's kind of fraying and falling apart. And yet we get Revelation chapter four, where the hallelujah should start. It says, after this, I looked and behold, and if you see that word behold, it's not just like a religious, like, stop. it's like open your eyes, see something. It's such a common word in the Bible. The Bible is continually asking us, behold something in the heavenly realm. Look to the things beyond what you can see with your physical eyes. Behold, a door standing in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. I need to show you something, John. You need to see something with your eyes. And he says, at once I was in the spirit and behold. He saw something in the heavenly realm. And the first thing that he saw was this, a throne. It's interesting when the saints see into the heavenly realms, time and time again, the thing that they see first, the thing that fills their gaze is this throne. It's been there for generations and generations and it is still there to this day and it is going to be the throne to which we all bow one day. We're told in the past that Satan himself had to come to this throne to give an account of what he was doing with his time to this throne. Saints would see this throne today in existence, more concrete and more real than the physical chair that you are sat on right now is a throne and it is in, in heaven and it displays and symbolizes who has the governing rights in Swindon. And the governing rights belong to Jesus Christ. Amen. All authority in heaven and on earth belong to the one who sits on this throne. We rail against this throne and there are powers at play in our world that seem so powerful and forceful. You read more and more about these trillion dollar companies that don't just have influence in their industries, but politics and world politics and things that are going, are going on in banks and committees. And you think there are some powerful things at play in our nation and nations. And yet every single authority and power 
bows ultimately to this throne. Psalm 2, the psalmist kind of thinking like, these, why do the nations rage? He's like, why do they do it? Like, why do you throw your fist against this almighty throne? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed? And they keep saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us tear their cords away from us. And the Lord, he sits in heaven and he laughs in derision because he says, I have already set my son on the throne in Zion. Amen. And one day we're going to bow before this throne. And at that point, when we're standing before this throne, every single one of us in this room, if you're not a Christian here, it's great to have you at church. You might think, I'm a crazy guy. I don't know. I just want to truthfully communicate something that every single one of us in this room is going to stand before this throne. We're not going to stand before our peers' opinion of us. We're not going to stand in front of all of our bosses' reviews that is done on our work over the last decade. We're not going to stand before any of our accomplishments. We're going to stand before this throne, the throne of Jesus Christ. And if we believe this, that in heaven there is a throne that belongs to Jesus Christ that is in existence today, more real than the stuff we can see now. If we believe this, wouldn't it make sense as followers of Jesus to live as though this is the only opinion that matters? This is the only one that we need to look to, amen? All other thrones, all other powers, all, the, all other authorities, they bow to this throne. So I'm going to live my life today like he is the one who governs all things. And on this throne, we're told this. Then I saw in chapter five now, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So picture this. Literally, the Lord's hand is out like this, palms raised, and there is this scroll sat on the Lord's hand, and he holds it out before the nations, before the heavenly realms, the earthly realms, and everything under the earth. And we're not told here in this place, but in Ezekiel and the Psalms, that we're told that in this scroll contains all the purposes of God for humanity, for blessings and for judgments. All the purposes of God, everything that the Lord wants to will in terms of salvation and blessing and revival and Holy Spirit and baptisms and church growth and church planting, all of his blessings for the nations are contained in this scroll and they're sealed with seven seals. And in this day and in this time, if a scroll was sealed, that it meant that everything that was in this scroll was locked up. And whenever the, the, the worthy one, the one who had authority, opened the, the, the seal, at that moment, literally at that moment, whatever was contained in the scroll became legal law to be enacted. And it might take a week, it might take a year to enact, but whatever is there now needs to be enacted. And the Lord stand, sits like this, sorry, and the scroll is sat on his hand like this, held out before us even today, and says this, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who can come forward and unlock the seals from this scroll so that the purposes of God would be unveiled for the blessing of Swindon, for the blessings of London, for the blessings of the nations? Who is worthy? And we're told that no one in this room, no one in the heavenly realm and no one under the earth was worthy to step forward. Instead, this hushed silence falls upon this heavenly gathering and everyone goes deathly still. 
No one is worthy. We're, we're church planting in central London and I love, I love London. And I, I hope to, I was born there. I hope to die there. That's my wish. God knows, whatever. But that's what I want to do. But it's, it's a, it's a, it can be an overwhelming place to church plant. You're in the middle of 9 million people and some of the biggest, coolest, wealthiest, most powerful churches that are going. And you think they plant churches left, right and centre and they're doing it like every six months and it seems to be so easy. And when you're like a fledgling church plant and you're just trying to like pay your bills and make your way forwards, you think, Lord, what, what, what is it that they have that we don't have? Have you ever, ever thought that about other Christians maybe? I know you're a godly bunch, so you've never, com- <laughs> you've never compared yourself, have you? Have you ever seen Christians? You're like, oh, why do they keep getting promotions? And what, like financially, they seem to be, and their children are so happy. And like, they've like, got so many holidays and their car's so nice. And like, you, th- you think, what, what is it that they have that I don't have? And sometimes in our weak moments, we could be thinking, maybe they've got some like intrinsic worthiness. Or maybe the Lord has a particular pleasure over them that... Like he's doing assessments and like, you're relatively worthy, you're very worthy, you need to try harder. And you, we're kind of on this like sense of like, okay, how, how am I doing? You think maybe they're getting ahead because they're worthy. And what we're told here is that no one, no one is worthy to receive the blessings and the purposes of God. Verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able so able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so John's response was, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And th- these aren't like nice, pretty Sinead O'Connor type one tear down the, you know, ah, uh, that would go well on a music video. These were ugly bellows of helplessness. Ever been there? Probably behind closed doors when no one else has heard you and, and it's, it's not pretty. John goes there because he suddenly realises that there is no hope for the nations. There is no one who can bring the blessings of God to the nations. Who is going to strengthen the churches? Who is going to see people won to the glory of Jesus? Who is going to see more people baptized? Who is going to see more churches planted? Who is going to see the redemptive power of the Holy Spirit at work? And he sees no one. And he is broken. And you've got to imagine this heavenly situation where it's essentially quiet except for this one bellowing voice near the throne. John, who is probably on the floor, I imagine, right now, just weeping and broken. The mark of having met with God, one of the marks, is tears. Just this sudden sense of like, uh, there's something that's broken inside my heart, a heart, something that used to be kind of hard and has just suddenly broken because you realize I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. All I have is in God. And it breaks you. Sometimes it it can be hard. Like we're kind of taught from very early, you're tough. You, you, You pull things together. When you see the the manliest of men in the scriptures, like the Apostle Paul. Like, you don't want to be in a room for too long with this guy. 
He was not a comfortable, nice, chatty guy to be around. He was a man with a vision. Jesus. These are men who wept for the sake of the glory of God. And then what we're told is this. This elder comes along to him. And I mean, if you ever meet someone who is like in the depths of despair, this is just like a little tip from me to you for free. The thing you don't want to say to them is like, cheer up, mate. It's, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's not as bad as you think it is. You know, like you've got to get, it's, it's Monday morning tomorrow. So like you kind of like, you know, have, have a coffee. You'll be fine. But what does this elder who should know better, what does this elder do to John who's on the floor weeping? He says, literally, don't weep. Like, John, get up, mate. It's going to be fine. Like, if you're going to say that to someone in this kind of situation, you need to have some objective, concrete reality that is going to counter the tears. An actual reason why he should not be crying. And this is exactly what he gives John. He says, do not weep. For behold, see something, John. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, you've got to look up, John, because on the, on the throne, there is a lion of the tribe of Judah. Jacob prophesied over his 12 sons and he prophesies over his son Judah. And he says to Judah, there is going to be a scepter in your hand and the peoples are going to be obedient to you. He says, you, Judah, are going to be the ruling one. And he says, there is a ruling one now, John, on the throne and the peoples are going to be obedient to him. He says, he is the root of David. If you know King David from the Old Testament, like he, he, he was what you might call a winner in life. Like he had, he, had, he had a lot going for him. He had the looks. He was physically strong. He was a fighter. And yet he also had a feminine side. He could write songs about the fights that he did. He was this amazing mix of like incredible manhood. And he goes on this military advance as a young boy and military advance over military advance. And he grows in power and prestige in the nation of Israel. Even to this day, Jewish people look back to David as the true king, the high point of their nation. And what we're told is that this kind of ruler, one like David, is now sat on the throne in heaven a military leader who is conquering, not just over people, but for a nation, but for the nations, not just one whole of time in this life and in the life to come. And Paul tells us in Romans 15 that this one who sits on the throne, his name is Jesus. And he reigns and he rules as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. So he says, John, you don't need to weep. So John, you can imagine John thinking like just recovering just for a moment. Thinking like, and we're told that he comes to look up and he looks at this lion. And this is what we're told in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. And you think, hang on a minute. Like, is that a mistranslation? So you say, the elder says, look, there's a lion. And John looks up and he says, it's a lamb. What, what's, what, what's going on here? Jonathan Edwards, who's an old Puritan preacher, he said this about this verse. He, he said, what we see here is a display of the admirable conjunctions of the diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ, which I know is exactly what you were thinking when you thought this 
yeah, there's an excellent display of the converse conjunction. What he's saying, though, is this, is that there is a lion on the throne, but there is also a lamb. And these aren't two beings. They are one being. That the lamb is the lion and the lion is the lamb. And it's not like this, that sometimes this Jesus, he acts like a lion. Like sometimes you see him with the Pharisees and he's arguing with the Torah and you think, wow, he's, he's lion-like in this moment. He goes into the temple and he upturns tables. He's exercising his lion strength. And sometimes the woman at the well, he's a lamb. Ah, oh, it's tender Jesus. It's not like sometimes I'm going to exercise lion-like strength. Sometimes I'm going to be like a lamb and be meek. What we're told and what happens here is the way that Jesus Christ exercises his strength, all of his power, the way that he does that is as a lamb in meekness. He is always operating as a lion and he is always operating as a lamb. And the way that he is conquering and the way that he is bringing about his victory is as a lion coming to us continually as a, as a lamb in meekness. Does that make sense? So even as he comes to us today, and I'm guessing in worship, you sense some of his presence. That was the lion of the tribe of Judah coming to you so gently as a lamb. If he only came to you as a lion, this place would be incinerated because of his holiness. And yet he comes to us gently in his meekness so that his strength would be made available to us. And this is what we find out here. He says, he carries on because he sees this lamb, this lamb standing as though it had been slain. You've just got to get the kind of the strangeness of this image. There's a lamb and yet it's got this, the scars of being slain around his neck. And with the seven horns and with the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Just imagine this gasp that went out in the heavenly realms. Suddenly there is one who pops off and comes and takes the throne out of the right hand of the father. Is it possible that there is a worthy one? And why would this lamb be the worthy one? Why would he be able when no one else, even the strongest and most holy of archangels can't come to open this scroll? Why is it that this lamb, this Jesus can do it? And we're told when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. The very thing that makes him worthy is the fact that he was slain on a crucifix 2,000 years ago. You get how like contrary this is. So Jesus Christ, we're told, was there at the beginning of creation. He was there speaking life into being. Galaxies and galaxies and the universe and the heavenly realms and the earthly realms and everything under the earth filling the universe as we now know it, creating us, his lion-like power being displayed in the universe. And when, when we watch Jesus coming and ministering and talking and walking and teaching and healing, he's walking around. You, you, you sometimes think, this is a lion amongst us. We see, like, Jesus seems to walk around the Middle East when he came as a man, like he actually owned the place. You ever get that sense? Like he seems very calm 
about like what's going on. He walks into synagogues where people hate him. And he seems very calm about doing that. That kind of behavior is apex predator behavior. A lion, if you watch a lion, like a lion sleeps anywhere it wishes. In the middle of the savannah, there might be hyenas, jackals, predators, but he is at the top of the food chain. So he sleeps wherever he wills because no one will dare come touch the lion. It's this moment where Jesus is sleeping on a boat and these waves are crashing in on the boat and hardened fishermen are freaking out because they think this is the moment I die. And what do we see with Jesus? He sleeps. Because he knows, he says in John 10, I'm the one who lays down my life and I pick it up again of my own volition. So if I'm not ready to die, I'm not ready to die. And he sleeps. That's lion-like behavior. There's this amazing moment where he's pushed out of the synagogue and the, the, those who hate him kind of walk with him, it seems to be, towards the edge of this cliff. And there's this crazy moment, I think it's in Mark, where, where we're told that Jesus walks away from them and walks back into town. It's like the crowd just slowly parts. And he's like, I'm uh, not going to get pushed off the cliff today, guys. I've got some more things to do. And no one says anything. That's lion-like behavior. And yet this lion chooses continually to come to us as a lamb. And he willingly goes to this cross to be slain. And we're told at any moment, this lion could have called down 12 legions of angels to be taken from this cross, to be taken from this moment. He could have called on the Father and with all righteousness and in all holiness, be taken right back to the Father's right hand again and us be left in our lay down his life for us. People flaunted, they, they, they threw insults at him and said, you know, you, you, you say you can save others and yet here you are, this lion draped, hung with nails on this cross. Save yourself. And he could have done this as a lamb being slaughtered. The way that God exercises his lion-like strength is through coming to us as a lamb in meekness. And because of that reason, we're told this. By your blood, Jesus Christ, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So you have been ransomed by this very act of lamb-like meekness. And notice the tense here. He says, you have ransomed people for God. He's saying, this isn't like when Jesus died. It wasn't like Jesus Christ died in this kind of wishful hope that people would see such a display of love and generosity. And I would even die for you. And like, he's hoping that our hearts would be melted and would feel lovely towards Jesus and maybe a bit sorry for him. Like, yeah, we'll bolster your support and we're sorry that you got were misunderstood. He dies to objectively ransom men and women for God. Sinners who will become saints. Men and women who will become priests in the kingdom of God. Men and women who will be establishing the kingdom of God on the face of the earth to this day. He buys people to himself through this death. That he objectively takes Satan, sin and death on himself in this cross. And in his body, he dies with all of its power and is raised back to life as a lamb. And as he is raised back to life and he pops back on his haunches and he breaks the tombs 
the, 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 the stone of the tomb and he walks out and he ascends back to the Father. He rolls out this victory across the Middle East and across the Roman Empire and across the nations and into London and into the UK and into Swindon and into the east of Swindon and across the nations for every generation that he might be the victorious one. Amen? And he's doing it as a lamb. This is the amazing thing. Because the way that Jesus starts this victory is the way that he finishes it. The way that Jesus starts by dying on a cross is the very way in which he is going to finish the task of seeing the nations one to himself. We like to talk about like if we're doing well in life, I don't know if you've noticed, we, we use quite aggressive language. We talk about like nailing it. I nailed it. We talk about, I killed it today at work. We talk about bossing it. We talk about dominating. I mean, it's, a, it's aggressive language. And the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God coming to earth is like this. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The kingdom of God belongs to lambs, like Jesus. He said, literally, you're, you're going to inherit Swindon, the, the meek. That's what Jesus says. I believe it. Do you believe it? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way that Jesus is going to finish his mission is through lambs. It's through you and I taking what is ours, and you, we've all got some strength. We've got, some of us have got intellectual strength. You're sharp. You've got abilities. You know you can think things through. You can read. You can process. You can... Some of you have got physical strength. Some of you have got financial strength. Some of you have got, you've got position at work. You've got influence. You can do, some of you are popular. You just, like, you're people people. That's a strength that you have. And the way that the kingdom of God is going to be established is not through us trying to puff ourselves up and trying to use our strength to dominate and exercise some kind of dominion. The way that we are going to see the kingdom of God roll out across Swindon and the nation is through this, us taking our strength and following the Lamb of God and saying, I'm going to use what I have and I'm going to walk into vulnerability, even if it means I am going to be scarred along with Jesus so that his kingdom might be expanded. Are you willing to take what, what you have and to be scarred with it? Jesus lives in, when you look up into the heavens and you see Jesus, he still lives with his scars. That's not a mistake. It's the very means by which the kingdom gets established. Some of you, I would imagine, already have scars, emotional scars, relational scars, Scars in your heart, you think, things that have happened in your life from parents, from friends. What can happen sometimes, we say, I, I am not going to allow myself to be hurt again. I am not going to move out in vulnerability. Why would I put myself in a position where someone could hurt me again? 
And what we need to do is look up to Jesus again and again and again, because we see one who was infinitely hurt, struck through the heart and is still there to this day with his scars in his body, because these are the means by which the kingdom of God is extended through vulnerability, not through exercising power. So I want to encourage you, church, to look to this Jesus. Look to the one who willingly laid down his life for you. The one who willingly said, I am going to be scarred for life, in eternal life, for your soul. And as you do that, a renewed vision, there will be a renewed passion for the, God, the, the glory of God and a willingness to walk into vulnerability. And this is the confidence that we have that the victory has already been won. Maybe if I can invite the band back up, I just want to close by reading these last few verses. Because the elders declare this new song and say, this Jesus who sits on the throne, he is worthy of all of our praise. And as this, there is this, like, this almost Mexican wave that begins to roll out from the throne room and it goes out and out and further out across the heavenly realms. And we're told this, John says, then I looked and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels and myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It says, and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and even those unsits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures says, amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So Lord, I pray even right now that you would give us a fresh vision of who you are. Lord, that these words would cut through the spiritual atmosphere that we might know you afresh, I pray.